The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something special. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I think of plot as character in motion. Character is always what we come back to. You know, if you stop someone on the street and ask them their favorite James Bond sequence, they might hesitate, their favorite James Bond action scene. But everybody knows how he takes his martini, right? The character is the thing that we return to the most. And so I wanted to make sure I had all this different stuff before I was going to devote myself to a longer running series like this. I mean, at the end of the day, I spend more time with Evan Smoke, that's Orphan X, than I do with my wife and kids. I spend more waking hours with him. So I had to make sure that it had the foundations for something that felt like a greater story that I could embed myself in and devote myself to and that I could learn as I'm writing. And, you know, one of my favorite quotations about writing is Joan Didion. She says, I write so I know what I think. And for me, nowhere has that been truer than with Orphan X. And welcome back to The Writer Files. I am your humble host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. New York Times and number one internationally bestselling author Greg Hurwitz spoke to me about why all writing is a process of self-discovery, how to humanize a trained assassin, and the latest Orphan X thriller, The Last Orphan. Greg is an award-winning and internationally bestselling author of 23 thrillers, including the Orphan X series. He's been published in 33 languages, and the LA Times called him a thriller giant. He's also a New York Times bestselling comic book writer, having penned stories for AWA, including Knighted, and the critically acclaimed anthology Newthink, Marvel for Wolverine and The Punisher, and DC, including Batman and Penguin. His eighth Orphan Axe novel is The Last Orphan, the ongoing series featuring the nowhere man, Evan Smoke, a man with skills, resources, and a personal mission to help those with nowhere else to turn. He's also a man with a dangerous past. Number one New York Times bestselling author Meg Gardner said of the book, Just when I thought the Orphan X novels couldn't get any better, Greg Hurwitz takes the series to an even higher level. The Last Orphan is pulse-pounding, heart-stopping, and thought-provoking. Greg has written screenplays and TV scripts for many of the major studios and networks, has published poetry, numerous academic articles on Shakespeare, and has taught fiction writing at USC. In this file, Greg and I discussed the reason he never took a creative writing class, why Orphan X is the culmination of his career, plot as character in motion, how every writer's voice is as distinctive as a fingerprint, 
writing Batman versus Bruce Wayne and villains versus antagonists, grabbing a bourbon with William Faulkner, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. And don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, where you can also sign up for email updates, get links to merch, and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. All right, we are back on The Writer Files, and I am honored today to be joined by an esteemed author. I have the New York Times and number one internationally best-selling author. We've got Greg Hurwitz hanging out with us today, man. What's the vibe over there? What's what's happening over in Hurwitz Manor? Uh, I believe you're in Los Angeles today. Is that right? I'm in Los Angeles. We have uh, Rhodesian Ridgebacks are abounding at the moment. It's a very dog-intensive uh, household and office. <laughs> and I'm just typing away. We had some rain here, which was very confusing for Angelinos who aren't accustomed to seeing water in the air. Yeah. But we had some rain and it's settling into spring. So it's very good writing weather. <laughs> Rhodesians and writing weather. I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're typing away. Um, can you share what you're working on? The next Orphan X book. The last Orphan just came out. Yeah. And I'm sort of writing ahead uh, to continue Evan's adventure in the series. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to talk about the latest. This is a prolific series. You're a prolific author. Um, I believe that you're working on your 24th uh, thriller. Is that correct? That's Yeah, that sounds right. I think 24 would be the next one. You've lost track, of course. A little bit. But yeah, no, we're right in there somewhere. But I, I, I've been loving working on this series, man. It's so much fun. Yeah, I want to talk about how how you have um, maintained this this energy and this output. But um, let's go back and talk about your superhero origins as an author, as we do with so many guests, and wind back the clock a little bit, and and maybe explain to us how you got to this place because. You know, I understand, obviously, you weren't always a, a, a best-selling author. Um, you've got a really interesting kind of a background with, I believe, a master's in uh, Shakespearean tragedies. Is that is that something that I read? That's right. See, I needed a very practical degree in case the, <laughs> the novelist career didn't pan out. I needed something where they'd be kicking down my door with job offers. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so take us back a little bit. Well, look, I, I, I wanted to be a, a novelist from as young as I can remember. It's the only thing I ever wanted to do. And so in the, in the course of pursuing that, I mean, one of the things that I did was I just went, I did not take, you know, I wasn't a creative writing major. I never took a creative writing class. I never read books on writing um, because I kind of felt like my time in college and then in grad school was the time for me to kind of be a hunter gatherer for as much information and uh, different subjects and academic topics and aspects of the arts as I possibly could that could kind of go into the blender of my brain for eventually when I got to writing. I always thought that writing would be something that would take hold and I would continue to do sort of naturally. And so I just pursued and studied all the things that were of most interest to me. Um, I was undergrad. I was a I was a joint major in English and psychology, 
you know, I was obsessed with Freud. I was obsessed with Jung. In hindsight, everything makes sense, right? Moving forward, I was just pursuing the things of the most interest. But then I look back on it and it's like, well, obviously English, right? That makes sense for a bunch of reasons. You know, I always think that to be a novelist, the best training is to just go read 5,000 novels, right? Mm -hmm. But with psychology, you know, Freud's case studies read like short stories, they're so entertaining. They're so contained, right? There's an internal narrative structure to psychosis, delusion, dreaming, what, what have you. And then Jung, of course, never wrote about anything in his entire career except for narrative. I mean, Joseph Campbell with his Hero of a Thousand Faces is sort of just like the cliff notes to Jung. And so like both of these thinkers struck my fancy as did psychology. And looking back at it, you know, of course, it's a very clean marriage, but it's not like I chose that in thinking that English and psychology would somehow be a good combination of majors to be a novelist. But of course, you could do a lot worse than that, I think. For sure. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, really good observation that um, the hero with the thousand faces is a kind of a, a distillation of Jung's theories. And there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot to read of Jung, right? There's like, like tons and tons of like. Yeah, and it's not easy reading, man. Obscurant. Yeah. Yeah, no, Jung is dense as hell. He's not a very pleasing writer to read. You know, I understand why people default to Campbell or then default from Campbell to like a McKee story seminar, right? Because you can teach structure, right? You can't, there's certain things you can't teach, but the mythological basis, people can learn structure. That's why that's most often taught. But, you know, Jung is really dense. Like reading Jung sometimes feels like you're digging a hole with your face. It's not, it's not easy reading like <laughs> Freud, right? Who's just, kind of delightful to read. Uh, Jung's very, very dense. It's, it's hard to penetrate. And he, you know, it's weird. He spent the second half of his career writing about alchemy, the entire last half of his career. And that seems like such a weird topic until you sort of reconsider the fact that alchemy, the transformation of base material into pure material, right, of, of base matter into gold, Right. That's a mirror for the psychological process of individuation or the cathartic technique, if you're using Freudian terms, which itself is a distillation of narrative and narrative structures. Right. It's the hero's journey. How do you take something that's base or ordinary and have it move through a set of logical, symbolic steps or actions to transform into something that's more aligned, that's more resonant, that's more harmonious the way that that a precious metal is right or that a diamond is. And so even when he's writing about these offset topics like alchemy that make no seeming sense, if you kind of go back and squint at it a little bit, it draws in a focus. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. 
help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and right on. Yeah, I think many a, uh, a screenwriter or aspiring uh, TV writer has dipped into McKee, of course, uh, or use it as kind of a Bible. And um, yeah, I mean, I want to talk about your writing for both comic books, which you have done extensively, which I thought was very cool as a New York Times bestselling comic book writer who has written for AWA and some storied uh, franchises, Wolverine, Punisher for Marvel, and, and of course, Batman um, for DC, and uh, written for both both large and small screen. I want to talk about kind of, yeah, like, is do you feel like Orphan X is kind of the distillation of all of this, as you put it, kind of this grist for the mill that's birthed this, you know, uh, essentially like an American James Bond franchise, if you will. Yeah, look, Orphan X is very much the culmination of my writing career in a lot of ways. You know, the first Orphan X book was my 16th novel. And I kept kind of putting it off and putting it off. I was raised... And on all these genre characters who I love, Born, you know, Reacher, Bond. I mean, the acknowledgments to Orphan X, I go back and I dedicate it to a bunch of fictional characters going all the way back to Gilgamesh, you know. And so I just had to make sure I had enough pieces of it distinct enough that when I started this series, when I embarked on this bigger story, and it's a different sort of story arc, I wanted to have it be, can be very, very distinctive. So that nothing ever would feel like it could be exchanged with a Jason Bourne, let's say, action scene or a Jack Reacher fight. Every aspect, everything about this character and this world, I wanted to get a handle on so that it felt it felt unique uh, and accruing to this specific character. I think of plot as character in motion. Character is always what we come back to. You know, if you stop someone on the street and ask them their favorite James Bond sequence they might hesitate their favorite James Bond action scene, but everybody knows how he takes his martini, right? The character is the thing that we return to the most. And so I wanted to make sure I had all this different stuff before I was going to devote myself to a longer running series like this. I mean, at the end of the day, I spend more time with Evan Smoke, that's Orphan X, than I do with my wife and kids. I spend more waking hours with him. So I had to make sure that it had the foundations for something that felt like a greater story that I could embed myself in and devote myself to, and that I could learn as I'm writing. And, you know, one of my favorite quotations about writing is Joan Didion. She says, I write so I know what I think. And for me, nowhere has that been truer than with Orphan Acts, that I find that I'm writing my way through his story and his evolution as a thriller character, which is quite different than many that we're accustomed to. And I'm really sort of figuring out a lot of things as I'm going uh, in that process. So for you, I mean, it kind of sounds like a, also, a, I don't, not to sound uh, woo-woo, but like a process of self-discovery also. Yeah, I think that's what all writing is. I mean, you know, people say, are there parts of you in Orphan X? And it's like, there's parts of me in everyone I write. I think that, that when you create something, when you have voice, people talk about voice all the time with books, right? Like, what does that mean? You got to discover your voice. And I think that your voice, a writer's voice is, is the thing that only he or she, the way that every unique individual exists in the world, as distinct as a fingerprint. And if you can clear the, the clutter of 
anxiety of influence, of chasing the market, of figuring out what's commercial, of thinking about what sells, of thinking about what things you have sort of compiled from other things that you've read and you're regurgitating. Clearing the process out to really approach a character, to approach a story in a way that only you can. That for me is when you establish and find a voice that's very distinctive, right? That's Elmore Leonard. That's Megan Abbott. That's uh, Robert B. Parker, right? People who, when you're listening to it, there's a way that they are seeing the world and engaging with it that calls forth a very distinctive voice. And so I think the process of writing is always a process of self-discovery because you're trying to clear all of the clutter. You know, did you did you ever study the Renaissance poets? Yeah, some, of course. Uh, I think when you get an English degree, <laughs> they make you do that. Yeah, right. But I mean, you remember Wordsworth, like intimations of immortality, right? Life is but a birth and a forgetting. And I've been thinking about those romantic poets a lot, right? Who thought that the perfect Pat Emerson and Thoreau and, you know, the American transcendentalists also, but, you know, going back to Byron Keats, Shelley Wordsworth, they thought that, that the perfect order of the universe was in nature and was in children, right? And then we get kind of corrupted as we grow up, right? Or if you're vulnerable or sensitive, you get hurt, you get wounded, you put up armor, you start to protect yourself in different ways. And I think that, and so they always thought that part of the process of life is almost trying to clear all of the societal or social influences to get back to that state of childlike purity. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot about trying to write through something is trying to clear all of the background noise that has come in about stories, about marketplaces, about, you know, different ways that we've trained ourselves to think, right? Using any kind of captured language, right? Using, having any ideology creep in the story, all these things that we do, sales and marketing, and you're trying to clear all of that underbrush and get back to something that is, that feels sort of pure and distinct, um, and often that is, I think that's the perspective, that's the process of discovery of getting back to a pure version of your voice and the perspective that one is trying to convey. But of course, with all the knowledge of experience and of life also, and that's the trick. Interesting. Um, well, you've talked about this line that you use in each of the books, uh, kind of that you have described as um, the series kind of coalescing around this idea that uh, the hardest part isn't making a killer, it's keeping them human, right? And the Orphan X series is you described as a series about somebody evolving past the strictures and rules, um, the Assassin's Ten Commandments, and, and thawing into the imperfections and awareness of being human. And of course, uh, you know, there's a little bit of comedy that comes with that, but um, Talk about uh, kind of the genesis of, of the latest and, and kind of, you know, how you are, again, also the, the evolution of uh, your thinking behind where this is all headed. Well, Evan was taken out of a foster home at the age of 12, and he's trained to be an assassin and to basically go places that the United States is not allowed to go and to kill people in flagrant violation of international law. So he's, he's trained to be a cutoff man. He's He's trained to be a disposable weapon. He's expendable. If he dies, no one will miss him. He's from a foster home. And the line you refer to is when his handler and father figure, Jack Johns, when Evan is 12, tells him the hard part is not turning you into a killer. The hard part is keeping you human. And of course, those are two trains on a collision course. So we're following 
you know, there's flashbacks to his earlier executions, to his earlier work and all those different arenas. But at some point, those contrasting forces become too strong. And Evan leaves the program. He goes off the radar. He's being pursued by the same government that created him. But he's also got this 1-800 number. It's one eight five five. the numeral 2, nowhere. one eight five five two 2 nowhere <laughs> But essentially, and this all happens before the first book in the series starts. And that's pretty unusual. Like in hindsight, why wouldn't I start it, you know, with his training? Why wouldn't I start it with him as Orphan X? Why would I start so far into the story? And, you know, again, hindsight being 2020, when I'm writing, I'm never thinking about kind of bigger themes or abstractions or, you know, bigger notions. I'm just thinking about what's the best story. But looking back on it, you know, if this series is really about an assassin's sense of becoming, of evolving into being more human, one of the things I say about Evan is he never learned to speak the strange language of intimacy. He doesn't understand interpersonal engagements in certain ways, but he wants to. And so I open the show, I open the show, I open the story of him. I open the first novel right at the point that he's off. He's established himself under this alias. He's basically become a pro bono assassin for people in desperate need. And it's the first mission in which he's going to break all 10 of the assassin's commandments he was raised with. He's breaking the strictures of his training and his background to try and shatter through to a new understanding of what it means to be human. I think of Evan sometimes is that he's like Pinocchio, but he wants to be a real boy. And, you know, this series is about the process of him trying to starting to come apart and to take apart his old rules, his old uh, commandments, his old sense of identity. It's almost like he discovers that he's a thriller archetype and he doesn't want to be that. He wants to be more than that. And these books in the series is about what, what does that look like then if somebody starts to seek to understand better emotion and to live in the world in a different way and to find what it means to be and exist in a community, even if he's terrible at it. He's much more comfortable garroting a child trafficker in a Moscow banya, you know, than making small talk with the annoying elderly Jewish woman who lives downstairs from him at the mail slots. Right. But nonetheless, you know, he's an archetypal character who is living and coming back to the same world that you and I live in and trying to kind of learn and understand that. Coming back to the real world. Interesting. So so once the hero's journey has kind of <laughs> the ebb and flow, right? You gotta, you still gotta get your mail. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And you, st- you know, like, and so it was interesting because for me to have that piece, you know, Evan, I think of Evan as having his face up to the aquarium glass, right? He's looking in at all these people leading these ordinary lives that he himself never can. But as somebody who is trained to be a wolf to hunt other wolves, he can at least protect for ordinary people who call him, who are in desperate need, who are being terrorized by other humans he can preserve for those people the kind of life that he himself can never have. And that's his sort of reclaiming, I think, of his humanity one mission at a time. And so that's what the series has been about. And the last orphan, the newest one, is really the point that his past doesn't just catch up to him. It it actually overtakes him. Of course, we'll mention the latest in the series, 
And uh, this is number eight, right? The Last Orphan. That's right. And uh, the latest in the New York Times bestselling Orphan X thriller series, When Everything Changes and Everything is at Risk. Meg Gardner said, just when I thought the Orphan X novels couldn't get any better, Craig takes this series to an even higher level. The Last Orphan is pulse-pounding, heart-stopping, and thought-provoking. And uh, the book list said of the book, the writing is crisp, action scenes are both clever and cinematic, the dialogue is pitch-perfect, and the villains are deliciously detestable. Yeah, so so how are you feeling about the reception of uh, the last one? And, and yeah, kind of like, what's your momentum going into the next one? Talk about the, how do you maintain this momentum? The book tour for The Last Orphan was amazing. I just wrapped it up a few weeks ago, but it was the best tour I've had. I mean, I love the way this character is connecting with people. I love the conversations I'm having with readers on the road. It's been a, it's been a lot of fun. Um, for me, I mean, I think about each book is really going further. There, you know, there's some series that sort of reset themselves, and there's a there's a template, there's an expectation of what the book will hold. Um, and with Orphan X, he's constantly evolving. And so that's something that keeps me interested in terms of the fact that he's really changing. The types of books that I'm writing are changing. The missions he's going on are changing. And in this one, you know, I mentioned that his past catches up to him. He's essentially hunted down by the most powerful human in the world, the president of the United States, who unleashes a massive manhunt, right? And he's taken down, he's bound, he's gagged, he's dragged before her. And essentially, her problem is, is there's a there's a kind of renegade billionaire, the type of which we are familiar with in news headlines, who's accrued an incredible amount of power. He throws these giant Gatsby-esque parties on Billionaire's Row in the Hamptons, and he invites news moguls and Supreme Court justices and senators, and he puts every kind of sin on display for them. Uh, but he has cameras hidden all through the house. Ah. And so he's got an incredible amount of influence and power that he has accrued to be able to swing a vote or, you know, divert a news cycle. And that sort of power, extrajudicial power that he has accrued, is, is it's almost equivalent to a nation state and it threatens the president's power. And she needs him removed, but she can't do it legally. And so the only person in the world who could possibly pull off a mission like this, given the level of security that this billionaire has, the billionaire's name is Luke Devine, and also leave no fingerprints, is the greatest asset that the U.S. government's ever created, which is Orphan X. And even though Evan vowed that he would never again commit a mission execution not aligned with his moral compass since he fled the program, He's now given a choice, which is, do you want to uphold your code or do you want to have your life? Because that's the choice he's given unless he can figure out a third way. And that's the way of the orphan to get out on his own in some way and see if he can escape the clutches of the government, engage with this mission in some way that he can bring it into alignment with what his code is, because he operates very much from his own code and see where that leads him. Um, but the process of him getting captured is is actually traumatic for him. It's the first time that he's been seized by the government again. And I give some glimpses back to his earliest memories even. And so he comes out of this, you know, engagement with the US government where he is captured and kidnapped and has to figure a way out of it, really shaken up. And so it was important for me to introduce an antagonist in Luke Devine in this billionaire 
who is a very different type. Evan could kill him any which way. He's not like a big, scary, violent, capable, physically capable villain. He's an incredible, incredibly manipulative mastermind. And so because Evan is sort of stumbling into this mission out of a position of trauma, it's very important that the threat represented here is one that's psychological, that's emotional. This is a guy who wants to get inside Evan's head as they're circling each other. And Evan's trying to determine you know, if this guy has crossed the line and put himself essentially in Evan's crosshairs by doing something that's irredeemable and unforgivable that Evan can execute him. So it's a very different type of dance. Um, and that's one of the ways for me that I can keep the series fresh is if I think about different threats, if I think about, you know, one of the things that struck me when I was writing Batman is that every member of the rogues gallery for Batman contrasts and represents a different side of Bruce Wayne or of Batman. Right. And so you want every, you know, I don't think of villains as much as antagonists in my novels, but you want them to elicit a different sort of threat within the main character. And so part of how I'm keeping the series fresh for myself, because if it's fresh for me writing it, ideally it's fresh for readers who are reading it, is to come up with new types of threats, right? New types of stories, new types of ways that as Evan is finding his way increasingly into an understanding of humanity, which means more vulnerability, right? Which means more pain, which means more suffering because being more human and feeling more things means you have to feel all the things rather than just being sort of a shut down OCD operator. And so I made sure to have a plot and a story and an antagonist that's matching that threat. That's putting a scalpel, that's sliding a scalpel right through the chink in his armor. Very cool to hear you talk about it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I could probably pick your brain all day. We'll have to have you back another time. I know um, we have to wrap up here. And before I um, just kind of ask for your pearl of wisdom for your fellow scribes on how to persevere, I will, of course, point at your home base there. It's gregherwitz.net. You're on all the socials and you can connect there and um, read more about your fascinating bio and all the books. Um, but yeah, um, congrats on the latest. I got a fun one for you. And if you could have dinner uh, with or vodkas with any <laughs> author from any era to your favorite spot in the world, all expenses to pay it, of course, uh, who would you take and where would you take them? Uh, it would be bourbon, not vodka, because it would be with... <laughs> uh, William Faulkner in Roanoke, Mississippi, oh. the, where his home is. Bourbon with Faulkner. Very nice. All right. Well, that was, that was a pretty succinct answer. Um, honestly, we appreciate your time, your words, your wisdom. If you could just leave us with, uh, yeah, I don't know, just uh, some thoughts on how to keep going because you have uh, persevered. You've written in all these different genres and, of course, uh, formats and you know, continue to surprise us with your work. But yeah, what, what, what advice do you have to just, you know, writers who are just kind of thinking about hanging it up? Well, it's a balance in a lot of ways to have a career, any kind of career in the arts. And the balance is, is you want to find people who you trust creatively to give input on your work. Maybe be very careful who you're going to choose to listen to. But then the rule is that I have is that if there's somebody who I've trusted who clears that threshold, um, if they give a note, if they have feedback that's editorial, then I have to listen to it. And one of the things that's really important 
is not always taking people's notes literally. I've had notes before from a producer or a studio head where they say, hey, this third act is really dragging right here. And I'll go back and read it and I'll think, no, it's not at all. But if I can excavate beneath the editorial anxiety rather than being defensive or just fixing it in my own way, often what I can see is what's happened, which is maybe the maybe the end of the second act was dragging a little bit, but he didn't notice it or she didn't notice it until the third act where all of a sudden, you know, she noticed she was bored and jotted down the note there. So it's not that the notes are always wrong, but it's that if you're if you're fortunate enough to be engaged with smart people, try and figure out what it is that they're telling you, even if you can kind of argue it away. But you can't let too many people into the process, and you have to make sure there are people who know what they're talking about, because the second part of that, and this is the tightrope walk, is to hold to your own distinctive voice. We talked about voice a bit earlier. To hold to the fact that every writer, every artist has a perspective that is different on the world. And the most that you can kind of clear the mechanism, right? If you can squeegee off your third eye that looks out on the creative landscape, right? The pureness with which you can approach something and think in ways that only you do and not in received ways, not in ways that are kind of regurgitations of other entertainment or art or stories that you've read. That's the path forward that leads to, to having something that's really distinct and distinctive. Um, and those are the things that that readers will cling to and will want. I mean, so in some ways, the best thing we have to offer anybody is our uncorrupted selves, if we can get to them. Amazing. Quite a distillation. Um, I'd love to have you back to expand on some of these ideas and thoughts, uh, but we do appreciate you. And um, congrats. Uh, best of luck with uh, the latest. And we'll be looking forward to all the things, all the adaptations and all the uh, the new uh, work. But yeah, appreciate you coming on today. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm. And scene. We went a minute over. I'm so sorry. <laughs> nah, it's okay. I forgive you. That was good, man. Thank you. It's interesting to talk a little bit more on the artistic side, you know? Oh, for sure. Um, I literally could pick your brain all day um, because you have this fascinating point of view. And uh, I know you've taught fiction and, and uh, lectured and, and you're quite a, you've got quite a uh, brain there. So you, you can, I think of you as like a writer's writer who's like really kind of nailed the genre stuff. So congrats, man. That's really cool. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to, it's a good little writer's community, you know? People are really hungry to figure out the art and the craft, right? And to kind of have, I I feel like we need to make some of these arguments again. We've had so much sort of definitional and structural collapse culturally Mm. that people sort of forget the importance of some of these foundational things. So I think podcasts like yours are important to kind of remind people about the, the etiquette and the code of a craft. 100%.